Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a recent New York Times story about Senate Energy Committee Chair Joe Manchin's conflicts of interest quoted a source that said, It says something fascinating about our politics that we're going to have a representative of fossil fuel interests crafting the policy that reduces our emissions from fossil fuels. Well, a lot of people would say that's less fascinating than horrific, and particularly in the context of a new global survey of people between 16 and 25 that found that more than half of them believe humanity is doomed, and that 58% of those young people said their governments are betraying them. You really can't talk about why we can't get to realistic climate policy without talking about that betrayal and its roots. And that's why we're going to talk about Joe Manchin in particular with David Moore, co-founder of the investigative news outlet Sludge. Also on the show, you may have heard that more than 2,000 Americans a day are dying from COVID. That has not stopped the misinformation and misdirection from mainstream media. We'll get an update on media coverage of COVID from FAIR's editor, Jim Narikas. That's all coming up, but first we'll take a real quick look back at some media coverage. A September 22nd Chicago Sun-Times report declared in its headline, and we know many people don't read past that, that former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel's nomination to be ambassador to Japan, quote, has no significant opposition, close quote. Well, as noted by FAIR Associate and Roots Action Director Norman Solomon in a letter to the Sun-Times and to reporter Lynn Sweet, that is wildly and meaningfully inaccurate. It erases the vocal opposition from dozens of groups, including Code Pink, the American Friends Service Committee, Demand Progress, Jewish Voice for Peace Action, Veterans for Peace, along with a long list of bereaved Chicagoans who object to Emmanuel's elevation based on, to be polite, ethics, integrity, and diplomatic skills. There's nothing like hearing that your political involvement turns up in media as not significant to make you understand that corporate news media are not and should not be the arbiters of political significance. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair.
A couple months ago, Fair's Julie Holler noted that even as they reported on climate legislation and the key role of Joe Manchin as chair of the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, corporate media were failing to point out the West Virginia Democrats' conflicts of interest when it comes to fossil fuels. A four-month survey found a total of two stories mentioning Enersystems, the coal brokerage firm Manchin founded, and those stories implied that his connection to the company was a thing of the past. That's changed now with a September 20th front pager by the New York Times' Coral Davenport that put Manchin's continued profiting from coal production in the same sentence as indications that he will shape legislation to suit that profiteering. It's an advance, to be sure, but well before the time stepped up, there were independent reporters connecting those dots around Manchin, including our next guest. David Moore is co-founder of the investigative news outlet Sludge. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome to Counterspin, David Moore. Thank you very much. Well, there are a number of elements to Manchin's fossil fuel conflicts that you've reported on. Fair to say it's well beyond just, well, he's from coal country, so he's sticking up for his constituents. That doesn't cover it when it comes to him, though, does it? Tell us what's going on. That's right. I think there's an ambient perception that, well, Joe Manchin is from coal country and he has this ties and fondness to West Virginia. But that actually really understates the extent of his ties to the fossil fuel industry and especially his household's personal income and wealth that's held in his family-held coal brokerage. One of the ways that our independent newsroom sludge came to this story first, highlighting Manchin's fossil fuel wealth, was through an analysis of all of the stocks held in fossil fuel companies by every member of Congress. In a story early last year, we found that 134 members of Congress hold as much as $93 million worth of stock in fossil fuel companies and mutual funds. That's a towering amount. And there are members of Congress who sit on key committees in the House and the Senate. But Joe Manchin of West Virginia is truly a unique case because by taking over the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the current Congress, he's positioned himself as a key driver of climate legislation and also as a veto vote over climate measures that he views as being too rapid, even though they're what scientists say are the kind of steps necessary. In the investigation this summer, we looked into how Joe Manchin's family company, Enersystems, positioned himself in the West Virginia coal industry, and also how it grew to have stakes of between $1 and $5 million for Joe Manchin's household with an annual income that's averaged about half a million dollars since Joe Manchin joined the Senate a decade ago for a total of about $4.5 million just since Manchin joined the Senate. First, I wanted to note that on readsludge.com, you have an interactive feature that can actually tell folks whether their Congress members are profiting from the very fossil fuels that we know we have to eliminate. It's disheartening that such a feature is needed, but it's there if folks want to Look it up. Well, back to Manchin, he also gets more campaign donations. He really does stand out in terms of the recipient of the largesse of oil, coal, and gas. That's right. So he's a top recipient of campaign contributions from the fossil fuel industry. And his ties from the oil and gas industry and the coal industry especially, his ties to them also include 
assurances and outreach. This summer, in about June, he spoke with a top utilities lobbying group that's called the Edison Electric Institute, a powerful trade association in D.C. And he expressed concerns about the Biden administration's climate plans and about the goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by implementing climate measures. Not disclosed during this online speech that he gave to these powerful utility and power producers groups was that, in fact, his family company, Enersystems, has a contract with a power plant that sells electricity to one of their client companies, a subsidiary of First Energy. In this way, as Joe Manchin has positioned himself at the forefront of seeking to slow down and weaken the climate regulations that would help utilities produce more from renewables and then wind down the use of coal and methane gas over the past decade, it's underappreciated that Joe Manchin's family company is bringing in significant revenue in the ballpark of millions of dollars from the Grantstown power plant in West Virginia, the only power plant in West Virginia that runs on the type of waste coal that his family held company, currently run by his son, Joseph IV, services for this electricity provider. Well, I've been reading some specifics about what Manchin wants to remove or change from the climate legislation that's been put forward. But if he doesn't support eliminating the burning of fossil fuels, I mean, how much does it matter whether he's for rewarding renewables? I mean, it's kind of a breakpoint issue, isn't it? I, I keep reading, well, it could still be better than they are now, but this is kind of a make-or-break thing, isn't it? The deadlines that climate scientists have set for ending the burning of coal and natural gas in the energy mix are fast approaching. Reports from the UN's IPCC report, as well as from the International Energy Agency, are emphasizing that fossil fuel production needs to begin ramping down quickly with a goal of around 2030-2035 that many parts of both climate scientists and the and also many democratic policymakers who are more environmentalists say it needs to happen. Joe Manchin's plan seeks to continue the burning of coal up through and past that date. And especially in his most recent actions, speaking here in September of 2021, he's seeking to boost the prospects of methane gas to continue to be part of the energy grid. Through this work, he's seeking to continue his personal company's profits and the $5 million in inner systems, which in turn allows him this image that he's crafted himself of independence. The houseboat that he lives on in D.C., for example, comes from significant wealth held in the burning of waste coal that he's seeking to prolong and continue through government policy. Well, it might seem unrelated, but you just reported earlier this week another disturbing development with regard to Manchin, and that's cutting ethics provisions from For the People. Can you explain that in layperson's terms? That's right. In addition to slow walking and weakening the climate measures, Senator Joe Manchin has been active in the Democratic deliberations around a major ethics and campaign finance reform bill. Previously introduced and passed by the House's the For the People Act, it's been filibustered in the Senate and is now a different sort of set of compromised voting legislation called the Freedom to Vote Act. Senator Joe Manchin took the lead on demanding that this package of reforms eliminate almost all of the ethics reform measures, which would have prevented lawmakers from working in their financial self-interest, and also 
significantly weaken the campaign finance reform that amplifies the value of small dollar donations and would have experimented with other types of public campaign financing that would have made candidates less reliant on outside spending and big money donors to be able to run their campaigns. This is all in line with years of alliances with the Chamber of Commerce and especially even with companies who are participating members of the right-wing legislative state network, ALEC, of which Senator Joe Manchin is a former West Virginia chair when he was a state senator Mm -hmm. before he was secretary of state and before he was governor of West Virginia. So Joe Manchin has taken the lead in diluting and preventing the ethics provisions that were endorsed by Democrats in the House and have the support of Senate Democrats. Well, let me ask you finally just a question that I always have. When financial beneficial connections are pointed out, as in Manchin's case, they're sometimes presented as potential conflicts of interest. Uh, Mm -hmm. The implication is that I can hold millions in stock on toasters and then write the laws regarding toasters, but if you don't have a picture of me you know, rubbing my hands fiendishly and saying, I'm doing this to make money, wahaha, then then it's somehow not yet corruption. But if you're a lawmaker, why isn't a conflict of interest itself corruption? I I don't quite get it. It's a great question, and it's it's one that the long-plagued policymakers over the last decade as we look to achieve policymaking independence in Congress. So one of the first things that I can recommend in approaching the problem is one can drop any common-sense notions of conflict of interest or ethics standards in Congress. Members of Congress and their leadership in both parties simply don't want these rules to apply to them. Members of Congress don't want to pick up ethics regulations that would be common sense to anyone else, like you can't be the chair of the Energy Committee while also holding up to $5 million in a waste coal plant that's polluting both the air and the land and water of your home state. Reformers often point out that these common sense notions don't apply to members of Congress. And I think one of the best ways to see their impact is over the past decades, as climate measures have hit roadblock after roadblock in Congress, as these mounting climate deadlines continue to approach, we're clearly looking at decades of inaction by Congress on climate and on other really vital environmental policies. That's just now being raised, again, for rehabilitation and then a more climate justice framework. And I think if you look at the decades of inaction, it's very reasonable to follow that the impacts of the fossil fuel industry lobbying and the trade association of the electricity industries are having a disproportionate influence on policymaking and that these common sense ethics steps that pushing them, especially with the leadership in both parties, is going to be a really helpful step towards implementing, winding down the burning of coal into the atmosphere and beginning the adoption of clean, renewable energies. We've been speaking with David Moore from Sludge. Find their work online at readsludge.com. Thank you, David Moore, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much. As we record on September 23rd, Johns Hopkins reports an average of 2,031 people are dying from COVID every day in this country, the highest rate seen since March. COVID-19 has officially surpassed the U.S. death toll from the 1918 influenza pandemic.
And in some states, the spread of the highly infectious Delta variant is still on the rise. COVID's toll is not numbers, of course, but human lives, and not just the dead, but the sick and harmed and the loved ones left behind. It's the human beings that seem lost in the corollary disaster that is media misinformation. When books are written, the lies and distortions and huckstering around COVID will play a key role. Joining us now for an update on COVID in the media is Jim Narikas, FAIR's editor. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. Thanks for having me on. So what's on your mind right now? Well, I want to start off by, by saying that people should get vaccinated, that, that, that this is is vitally important that this pandemic is going to go on until we get enough of the population vaccinated to stop people from at least dying from the disease, if not stopping the spread of the disease entirely. When the vaccines have been given to two and a half billion people at this point, if the vaccines were as dangerous as COVID, there would be 60 million people around the world dead right now from the vaccines. Uh, clearly, this is not happening. You know? so, so I say this as preface because I want to say that people's mistrust of the media is a big problem. It's the main problem, really. We could have vaccinated the entire country by now. And we have. We've only vaccinated 55% of the country, largely because people are either distrusting what they're hearing from establishment media or they're believing what they're hearing from right-wing media that I am convinced – is knowingly encouraging people not to get vaccinated because they believe it will be politically beneficial for them if the pandemic goes on under the Biden administration. And certainly the Republican Party is in a much better position right now than it would be if everyone had got vaccinated and the pandemic had ebbed away in this country. And this is a particular problem for the elderly who tend to be more conservative and to, to be more likely to be listening to, to Fox News and, and hearing the distortions of the vaccine program and what the dangers are. But the fact that people are hearing the establishment media, you know, I'm thinking of the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, NBC, CBS, who are giving out the message that you should get vaccinated, and they're not believing it. And that is because we have in this country a media system, an information delivery system, that is not trustworthy. People don't trust them because they have no reason to trust them. When you look at the crises that have faced the country in, in recent years, and, and that's really why you why you need a news media is, is for the danger moments. After September 11th, the establishment media got us into a devastating war, a series of wars in the, in the Middle East and, and beyond based on false evidence, distortions of what was actually happening, the economic crisis of 2007, mm -hmm. uh, 2008, was not foreseen by the media, even though it was patently obvious that the housing bubble was out of control and was, was posing a huge risk to the U.S. economy. You saw a lot of denial of this in establishment media. And then after the bubble popped, the media were pushing the idea that the worry was that the government would spend too much money to get the economy going again. And we had years of unemployment because people listened to established media saying, don't react too aggressively to this economic disaster. Climate change is another issue where the dangers have been clear for decades. And media have failed to present what actually needs to be done 
to stop catastrophic changes in our environment that we all depend on, particularly of distrust in the African-American community and people of color. You have a media that assumes that police are telling the truth about a police shooting unless there is video of police actually murdering somebody. And so do you think this is a media that is on my side, that is looking out for my health? No, you don't. You, You are... Concerned. This is, again, why, this is why I brought up at the beginning of this interview that I do think it is vital for people to get vaccinated. I'm not saying you should distrust the media, therefore don't get the vaccine. Right. I think you should get the, the vaccine despite the fact that the media is telling you that you should do it. Absolutely. And people have no reason to trust corporate media, many people, and we're media critics. You know, we know that. But that's why we think it's so important to read widely and read independently so that you can discern, you can read through mainstream media, which is is what we encourage. I was thinking of also, you know, you have establishment media, which in this case are putting forward scientifically based information about COVID and about vaccination, and right wing media that are doing something very different. But then you also have corporate media doing this chin-stroking thing where they talk about the culture of anti-vaxxers and they sort of, even though as a whole establishment media are putting forward correct, if you will, messaging, they also play so deeply into the idea that it's not a public health issue, that it's somehow a political or a cultural issue or even a thing about foreign policy. You know, so many other values pollute that medical information. Yeah, there there are many, many flaws in the way that established media have covered COVID. As you say, the, these interviews where you go and talk to people who haven't gotten vaccinated, and they give you the misinformation that these people have heard and are repeating, the reasons why they think that it's safe for them not to get vaccinated than to get vaccinated. And the reporter will just let it lie there yeah. without correcting it. You know, and And just the framing of vaccination as a matter of personal choice and rather than as a matter of public health is a devastating frame. It is the reason, again, that 2,000 people a day are dying in this country is because we're presenting vaccination as a consumer choice that people should get or not as their inclinations dictate. If you had coverage that was looking at lack of vaccination on the community level, and what high rates of unvaccinated people do to their communities, I think that this would be much more effective than asking people what misinformation that they've heard, especially if you don't go on to correct that misinformation. People are making fun of Ross Dowdit because he wrote this column about what if COVID had killed one in 50 people rather than one in 500 people. And I think that it was a you know kind of a goofy column, but the point that COVID deaths are still rare enough that you are not likely to be able to tell how bad it is by looking around your immediate circle. You need the media to tell you what is happening in your community. That is, this is why we have a news media is that they they're supposed to gather up information about what's going on in our society and inform the society about it and. I have seen a real lack throughout the pandemic of media really trying to convey in the same way that you, that you convey like whether people should take an umbrella to work because it might rain that day. The information about how the, the virus is 
being transmitted, what are the, the risks to you? What are the risks to your community? I do not think it's being communicated in a way that really allows people to make informed choices about what they're doing to stop this devastating disease. Another thing, Jim, is the international angle that's been kind of mysterious. I mean, even if you if you think, well, let's look at the numbers and see what they say, some of the comparisons media seem to be making don't make a lot of sense in terms of China, for example. It is infuriating when you look at how the global pandemic is being covered, that media that would hate to be compared to One American Network doing anti-vax propaganda are doing that same kind of propaganda when it comes to other countries, you know, to, to talk about how China has a problem because they are trying to prevent the spread of COVID in their country. They have a, a zero COVID policy. They talk about the cost to the country of having this policy of not letting people die from COVID. First of all, their economy is actually doing better than the United States has had with its much more lax approach to the pandemic. But there's this idea that in China, people are having pandemic fatigue, unlike in the United States, is the, is the implication. Like, there, they're worried about COVID, whereas here, we're all relaxed and are feeling no pain because we're, we're not letting it Affect bother our, us. Affect yeah. our major policy, and we're not trying to zero it out. You know, we're just accepting that you, you can't do that, you know? And then also there's the feeling of like, well, yes, they've done better at containing it, but that's because they're so authoritarian. And so dying from COVID is the price of our freedom, I guess, is the line. You go into a pandemic with the media that you have and not the media that you wish you had. But I feel like there is a vast amount of human suffering that could have been prevented and could still be prevented if media took the approach of, we are going to figure out what is actually happening with this virus and talk about what are the steps that are needed to stop it instead of treating it as a culture war, a political football, a source of clickbait. I feel like the corporate media have so much to answer for in this disaster. And I, I don't think that they will ever really stop to think about the cost of the way they have approached this disease. We've been speaking with FAIR's editor, Jim Narikas. Jim Narikas, thanks for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you'd like to hear other shows or transcripts, you can find them all on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.